Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Susan Halford, a professor of sociology and co-director of Bristol's University's new Digital Futures Institute. Susan is also one of the panelists at the Anthropology and Technology Conference happening online um, in October. In today's episode, we are talking about digital futures, what's ahead for us and how to best shape it together in a multidisciplinary manner. Susan shares what she thinks have been the fundamental disruptions brought about by digitalization and brings forth many insightful examples from her field of work the making of socio-digital futures. We explore the challenges of working together with technology experts and the ways in which we can better facilitate multidisciplinary approaches and give space for experimentation. According to Susan, digitalization ties up challenges and opportunities and provides a window to try and reconfigure the status quo. She explores how COVID-19 has exacerbated AI processes and the new discussions it could help spark. Finally, Susan shares her expectations from the Anthropology and Technology Conference and her hope that it will further facilitate the making of socio-digital futures. We hope you enjoy it. Susan Halford, a professor of sociology and co-director of the Bristol Digital Futures Institute and also one of the speakers of the Anthropology and Technology Conference happening in October um, Originally from Bristol, but now it is um, online. Hi, Susan. Hi, lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me. Thank you for, for being here. Um, I want to get right straight into it and, and kind of um, ask you to tell me and our listeners a little bit about your professional path uh, and particularly uh, what, what kind of like drove your focus on, on digital futures as a subject and as a field. Oh, well, it's quite a long story, but I'll try and keep it as, as short and, and interesting as possible. So, my <laughs> academic background is, is really mixed. I've never had a single discipline academic background, either as an undergraduate student or, or being a postgraduate student. I started my academic life at the University of Sussex, which at that time had no departments and it was completely impossible to do a single honours uh, degree, a single discipline degree at Sussex. Uh, everybody combined major subjects with a whole series of other subjects. And, and I thought that was normal. I thought that's what university life was, was like. So I started out as a geographer, but I spent a lot of time working on cultural and community studies as well as geography. And that, that carried on through my master's and my PhD. And then I ended up working in a sociology department, which was a bit of a shock, although it was a fantastic department, because it, I realised that not all of academic life was so interdisciplinary, um, mm. and that it was a bit more of a struggle sometimes to make those connections. But once you've started that way, you, you can't think any other way, I, I, for me at least, that's what I found. So I carried on working with geographers and political scientists and, and social policy experts, uh, all the time working on, I was an organisational sociologist and worked on everyday practices of work and organisation, so very qualitative and theoretical. But I was interested in things like organisational space or policies for organisational change. So it was obvious to me you would go and talk to geographers or, or political scientists. 
Uh, and then I started doing work on digital innovation in the workplace. And I was really focusing on how digital innovation is imagined by those who work to create technology and used, brought into use, brought into everyday practice by people doing their job. And I started looking at a whole range of ways in which digital technologies and social practices were changing the nature of work and the nature of organisations. And that kind of one thing led to another. And I started to think much more broadly about socio-digital transformations, not just in the workplace, but on a much broader scale, working with some fantastic people at the University of Southampton in computer science on an interdisciplinary program called Web Science, which had been established to explore the transformations of the World Wide Web, mm-hmm. which included, of course, the Internet, included the web. Social media came along during the beginning of that process when we were starting that. And then we moved into big data, data science, machine learning, AI, you know, the whole thing kind of came together around Web Science. And so my research just became aligned with that, particularly thinking about the politics with a small p and a big P of digital data and digital infrastructures. So what forms of knowledge are enabled? What forms of knowledge are restricted? Who can know what? What the data tell us? What kinds of data? What kinds of infrastructures? So very much tying up data methods and knowledge together. Um, and, And that led me to do a lot of reading and thinking about the processes of socio-digital change and very Mm. anti-deterministic, non-essentialist ways of theorising, which had always been the case, thinking about gender or or organisational change, which I'd worked on for a long time. And I'm coming to the end of the story now. That that has made me think much more about, about futures. So once we take a position which is that socio-digital transformations are not deterministic and that they are emergent and that they are practiced, they're done, they're performative, if you like, then the obvious corollary of that is that, that there are choices, there are vectors to follow or not follow. And whilst the power relations in the field are deeply uneven and some people are much better placed to determine what digital futures emerge than others. It's nonetheless the case that those futures are not fixed and that there are possibilities to intervene and recreate and produce alternatives in terms of thinking about digital futures. So that's kind of where I am now, which is working with a whole range of people across the disciplines to think about how do we create digital technologies in a way that thinks prospectively about the kinds of worlds that we might be making. We can't know. This is not about prediction. It's not about certainty, but it is about futures in the making in the present time. How are we conceiving of, thinking about and creating futures in the present? Yeah, and I really like how we kind of you took it from the uh, the education and this kind of mindset of not having silos between disciplines and how that lands in this uh, work that you're doing now where you're actually bringing different disciplines together around a common goal uh, without, how do you say, staying in one space of expertise. So it, it, it's... It makes me think about, uh, yeah, my own background and in general in applied anthropology and how how difficult it is to unlearn some of these uh, frames of, uh, of of knowledge, 
coming back to the technology, uh, my second question, um, you know, I understand how from your background must be more natural engaging with other disciplines and other areas of expertise around the joint goal. But how does it happen in your current role? Um, what are the, some challenges in this co-creation process between multiple expertises that come together to work around socio-technical systems? Yeah, well, you've, you've just mentioned some of them, really. I suppose I'd summarise them in, in two key ways. It's a much longer conversation, as, as you hint at. But the first one is kind of theoretical and, and epistemological, methodological, you know, the, the, the nature of the training, the worldviews, the, the understandings of what knowledge is and how it's produced and what kinds of concepts or, or not concepts <laughs> levels of theorization are used to, to interrogate whatever it is that we're looking at. Um, so there is that whole language, epistemology, methodology, kind of forms of knowledge practice which are so different, you know, mm. so fundamentally different, particularly between sociology. I'm a sociologist. I've worked as a sociologist for a long time. And I suppose if I had to identify, I'd say I was a sociologist and, and particularly between sociology and computer science. You know, they're, they're fundamentally different worldviews. And that's hugely demanding to, to take the time and the energy and the commitment to to work together rather than working with a group of people who share your initial assumptions, you know, for whom it's very comfortable to work together. It's not always comfortable working outside of, outside of your own expertise uh, and it is time consuming. So, so I suppose the first thing is the, the sort of epistemological. The second thing is the demand for commitment and time that it takes. And it can be really frustrating, you know, and it can be really destabilizing. There is nothing more undermining than someone outside of your discipline asking you what they think is a really stupid question. And you realize it kind of strikes at the heart of your assumptions. Yes. <laughs> what exactly do you mean by, you know, X, social class? And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's maybe not a great example, but. So, so there's that. And then, then there's a whole series of things around institutional structures and the way in which higher education is organised. But for all the, in the UK at least, for all the claims to support and drive interdisciplinary collaboration, universities, funding councils, assessment processes are all set up around disciplinarity. Mm. So that mitigates against it. You know, if your head of department wants to say to you, yes, but what, you know, what ranking of computer science journal will this go into? You know, computer scientists won't want to read this sociology. Therefore, this is not a strong computer science publication. That's really hard for people, particularly at the beginning of careers. It's very, very difficult. So um, but having said that, you know, you asked me what the challenges are. The thing that makes it all work is that there are people who will step outside of those boxes, who are deeply committed, who get it. They understand the importance of doing this and will do it anyway, <laughs> despite the difficulties. And then the other kind of collaboration we do is working with non-academics. So we work a lot with people in industry, in government, in um, civic organisations and community organisations. And, you know, they don't care about disciplines, right? They, they, they're not bothered by whether it's sociology or politics or computing or engineering, you know, because that maybe they've had some training in those disciplines. But once you're outside of that for a while, you know, you, you just start seeing it as stuff in the world that you need to think about or engage with or do. And um, it's completely obvious to them that you would bring together people from different places in the university. So 
all of that makes it, you know, overcomes those challenges really. Mm. Yeah, that, that's, I think, a very good bridge to my next question, which is, you know, what are some of those kind of more unexpected uh, combinations of, of expertise, of pairings uh, that you've experienced doing this work? And why, what, what did they bring to the table? Mm. I mean, I don't think I would find any combination of disciplines unexpected. And maybe that comes from the web science background because if we're thinking about the growth and nature of the web you you can't think of that in any way other than thinking it includes everything you know mm -hmm. so that I don't find the discipline surprising or unexpected I think the only way I can answer that question is in my own case that working um, with for example computer scientists um made me think about things I never imagined I would think about. And it made me talk about things and know things mm -hmm. that I imagined I would never know. So I've got a project at the moment which is working on semantic web technologies uh, and the forms of knowledge embedded in semantic web technologies. And I will find myself giving talks or reading articles and saying words <laughs> that I never thought would come out of my mouth, you know, because it's just making me engage with a form of expertise that I thought was never available to me, that yeah. was never part of my world. And that's really surprising. And that surprises people when I do that. Um, so I think what's surprising is is the, the new things that you create in mm. the spaces between disciplines. Yeah, yeah. And some of the wonderful people I've worked with who, who in, and again, I'm thinking about the web science stuff on this occasion, who will suddenly have moments of realization about there being just a completely different way to see things. And they say, oh, my goodness, I just never thought about it like that. And um, that, that's, it's those unexpected creativities that emerge in between disciplines that mm. things I would appoint to. Yeah. I have a, a story on my own on this one. First time I worked as a kind of a, an anthropologist together with an um, artificial intelligence uh, group that was supposed to build some algorithms, and they invited me to their working session. Uh, and, and then it was a one and a half hour of debating the formulas between how, how they build a certain algorithm, what are the assumptions that they do. And they were asking me for advice, and I realized that the fundamental questions that they ask themselves when they build algorithms have to do a lot with questions of philosophy. Like what is right, what is not right, and anything can be right. Like you can argue, as an anthropologist at the beginning, I looked at it and thought, well, if you take it from this position, then you can do this. If you take it from that position, then you can do that. Like, But then they keep asking me in that particular case, but what is right? What is the right thing to do? And then I thought, mm, maybe we need to bring a philosopher into this project. To kind of start exploring this kind of fundamental questions of, of uh, yeah, ethics and morality that really impacted the choices in that project of what is right and what is not right. So did they mean what is right in terms of what is correct? Or did they mean, is it a more normative question about what's morally right? Or, or Well, when, when they were building the formula, it's a mathematical formula where you say, if we associate this data with this data, it means that we get this type of result. Therefore, this needs to happen. 
So you're, you're basically associating something, some concepts, and you're drawing conclusions out. You're, you're building kind of like mini yeah. policies or mini, and, um, and it made me think it is, uh, that is really like, almost like I remember my first course when I read Platon and Socrates, and you know, it really brings you back to that kind of fundamental, uh, fundamental questions about truth. Um, so it, it's more than uh, normativity uh, in that particular project for me, because normativity, you can uncover it and then you can you can easily um, end up in a space where you say this is unequal. This will produce a disbalance of to change the way this algorithm uh, classifies data. But then when it actually has to do with questions of that are not about normativity, but there are about. Uh, what is right in, or wrong uh, with a certain process that has nothing to do with these type of power relationships, then um, I find myself in, in the interesting position that I'm unable to say what is right and what is wrong. Mm. Say, if you take this position, this is what will happen. And if you take this, this is what will happen. But I can't tell you what is the best way. Mm. Um Wow. So it was it was interesting for me because I I was as an anthropologist working with technology. Normally, the conundrums fall under inequality um, or visibility or um, assuming of power and agency of people over process and and technologists or people that bit algorithm assuming that the algorithm can do a certain process better than a human being. Therefore, they need to limit the power of the user or the agency and incorporate some of that process into the algorithm. And then it's easy to argue why they need to not do that or they are not diverse or inclusive enough or they don't see race or they don't know with the algorithm. But but when it comes to something more fundamental than this, I feel that I said, OK, this is my toolbox. If, if I want to go further, I need a philosopher. Yeah, philosophy is a different knowledge practice again to the social sciences. And I think your relativist response, which is, well, if you do this, this is means that. And if you do this, that means that, you know, that's that's a kind of philosophical position with a small p that, that I very much recognize as a, as a sociologist, you know, which is there are no absolutes from a sociological perspective. I mean, from a philosophical perspective, there might be and, and there is for some philosophers. And wanting, you know, I see the appeal for computer scientists and mathematicians who want a finite philosophical answer. They're not going to get that, almost certainly, from a social scientist. Yeah. But, you know, just to uh, quickly make another short parenthesis this time, I was reading this uh, amazing, like, uh, essay on extinction by um, uh, Catherine Ingham, I think it is. I don't know if, if you've read it. But in that essay, she contemplates on the extinction of the human race and, and uh, the ecology um, uh, uh, disaster that we're living in nowadays. And she she was talking about uh, technology and she said, you know, when we build certain technological advancements, we as human species do not dwell on the question of what practices in human society society are being replaced when this technology comes into use. And is that right or not? Like, for example, when you uh, develop a social media concept uh, that will hook people into something like Facebook, that changes the way we interact. Is that good? Is that bad? It, it, how it will affect uh, uh, Instagram? How it will affect um, self-image? Uh, 
how it will make teenagers feel about themselves when you replace the, the narrative of how you present yourself to your environment in that way. So this kind of fundamental questions of you do this and it does something good, but then let's dwell a bit on the practice or the habit that is replacing. And is that something that is good or bad? And who is to say that, right? She was asking that in the context of automated cars and not automated, like cars that use fuel instead of the horse or instead of some other ways of transportation. Um, no. That's exactly the kinds of questions that we are asking in, in the Bristol Digital Futures Institute. So that's exactly the point, which is oh, so right cool. to, to break that linear innovation model, which says, well, mm. we'll create some technologies and then we'll get some social scientists to look at the impact in five years time. And our approach is completely counter to that, which says, in the process of technology creation, we need to think about social, political, economic questions alongside that. So this is not about predicting. We can't know. You know, there's many, many examples mm. of how people have failed fundamentally to predict the impact of technologies. But it is about trying to ask those questions. If we mm. change the way that teenagers, I mean, that's not a very good example, but or maybe it is, you know, if, if we change the ways that, that people connect, what might that mean? You mm -hmm. know, if we have a like button or not a like button, if we if we have this number of emoticons or that number of emoticons, yeah. or if we set, I mean, we all know that the age of, you know, only people over 13 can be on Facebook. Or, you know, we know that doesn't work. We know that's, mm. a, that's a fallacy. Um, but it is about how do we create technologies taking into account social questions as well as technical feasibility questions. I love this. This sounds like a really, um, yeah, I want to read more about the particular projects now. Um, We're only just starting. so. Okay, so we have to wait for a little bit longer. Um, mm -hmm. So then I, I'm, I'm quite curious here because you, you talk about this kind of um, challenges and opportunities of the digital age and contemplating potential futures. What are some of these uh, challenges that you are seeing uh, right now as, as critical in our world globally or locally in, in the spaces of effect that, that the Institute is working in? Yeah, well, I think the challenges and the opportunities are very much tied together. You know, I, I don't think they, they are opposites. I think they, they're, they're very closely joined together, which makes it harder. So you can't say, oh, we'll just have all the, all the things we like and we'll get rid of all the things we don't like because they're, <laughs> they're too tied up together. And I don't think that they are only about the digital because they are about what I would call the socio-digital. So the digital doesn't have an essential nature to it. The, the digital, as we know and understand it, is shaped by the global concentration of digital technologies in the hands of a few small giant corporations. It's shaped by a very individualistic model. It's shaped by markets. It's shaped by legislation and uh, about privacy or not about privacy. So um, I think the challenges and opportunities are intimately connected and are mediated through those legal, cultural, social, economic processes. Um, so, for example, challenges around data ownership, around privacy, around surveillance, around categorization, um, those kinds of things matter because of forms of legal power or economic power or exclusion, inclusion. So if, if you ask me what the challenges are, I would say, say the challenges are around 
the incredible near-monopolistic position of, of the tech companies. They're around ownership, they're around control, surveillance, privacy, inequalities of many kinds. So inequalities between, you know, Facebook and the people who use Facebook, um, but also inequalities between um, different parts of the world, between social classes within the same parts of the world, you know, intersectional with race, gender, sexuality. So, so you know, it, it's all tied up together. But at the same time, the possibilities for making global connections, for access to information, for sharing stories, for organising resisting you know those all also come with those same social media platforms with the web etc etc so so it, it's a it's a you know ongoing set of political small p political power relations that work through technology that create both challenges and opportunities and, and the thing is the, the meta opportunity here is is the one which is about reconfiguring that it's about trying to intervene and reconfigure in those assemblages or those networks of of human and non-human actors that are mediated by these um, flows of power i don't know if i'm making any sense now yeah yeah yeah. you're definitely making sense it i just it just makes me think how much of of what is happening right now in terms of this kind of negotiations of powers between different players and through different uh, forms that it takes is 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 different or technology is just playing a game that we've been playing as human beings uh, for a long time, but just with different things. And it kind of leads me back to my next question. And do you think that this digitalization changed uh, in any way the way we theorize about society and particularly the agent uh, structure relationship? And if yes, then then how? So I, I think there's clearly not a not a moment of disruption where there's pre-digital and post-digital power relations, and clearly there's continuities and discontinuities. And I, I think one of the really interesting things is to work out where where those lie. You know, mm-hmm. so what is continuous? And what is disrupted and digitalization, digital, let's say digitalization has disrupted some established forms of value and culture and ownership. And, you know, that there are some new forms of power Mm. at play, but but it's still in many ways between fairly recognizable types of actors, I think. so a pluralization, multiplicity, speed, scale, you know, some of these, in the end, I always come back to speed and scale. If you say, what are the things that have really changed? Speed and scale, space and place are, are really significant in the sense mm-hmm. of the scale of data, the scale of, of um, processing, the speed of processing, the speed of communication. I mean, these are things that have really changed. Whether all they're doing is taking very familiar forms of power and familiar kinds of actors and making them disrupting the speed and scale at which those operate, I, I wouldn't be opposed to that kind of interpretation. But you know, the question is, what what could be changed? Are there things that could be just changed in that? You know, mm-hmm. really interesting work that's happening around re-decentralization of the web, or around local networks, or around data ownership. Now. Mm-hmm. Those are not easy things to do, um, but they are places, you know, one thing we know about digital technologies is that they have surprised us, you know, they have surprised all of us, I think. 
it's easy to stand here in 2020 and say, oh, I'm not surprised by any of this. I saw all of this coming. Mm. I'm not sure who saw all of, the, all of this coming, really. We might have seen bits of it. Some of us might have seen bits of it, but we didn't all see it coming. William Gibson, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the speed of it and with, with which is being developed is also to a certain extent for me personally scary if I look at the pace uh, um, with which academic knowledge is being produced about the topic. This is personally my uh, area of, of worry because so many of these technology, they go into production speed of light without proper governance or validation. And, and that makes me, it's a little bit like the Theranos uh, what happened with Terranos, huh? the, this bio, uh, this medical tech company in Silicon Valley, that you say, and we are going to disrupt uh, the testing world through technology without going to a proper process of building a technology that actually works and is safe for people to use. That usually mm-hmm. takes, of course, years. But then you have all this kind of ethos and this, this kind of discourses in that world that say speed is king. Mm-hmm. Uh, you t- you fail and then you iterate and then you fail again and then it's 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 at what scale this becomes irresponsible mm-hmm. and I think the academic space but particularly now looking at my own field of anthropology is incredibly behind in even giving space at the table of technology uh, for to have to have proper uh, scholarship around it built to and and part of it I think also has to do with the speed and and just the fact that scholarship takes more time to build. And yeah, that gap for me in my head now, it only goes bigger with each year because the speed of technology just gets faster. <laughs> um, yeah, well, so. I'd have a lot to say about that. I mean, I think just really briefly, you know, the organization of innovation, the organization of digital innovation really matters. And I think there's many, many examples where If you look at the rate at which AI PhDs are being brought up by commercial companies and and how much they're being paid to go go and work, the kind of hoovering up of of artificial expertise by by Google or or by Facebook or any of the big tech companies, is siloing expertise in places much more than it used to be. And, And then governments and academics are in a position where they're running to keep up. Yeah. Yeah. And then by the time they've caught up, it's too late. Um, but but I think that's why it's really important to bring the right partners together for this mm-hmm. kind of endeavour. So the work that we do is working with academics who are at the cutting edge of their fields and who are the academics who are highly sought by mm-hmm. those commercial companies to work with them. So there is, you know, there is still a huge value in that academic research for some commercial companies. And so the partnerships that we have with those across engineering into, you know, the cutting edge of quantum tech, you know, post 5G, the cutting edge of machine learning and so on, that that it's really, really critical that social scientists work with those people. And we're never, I'm never going to be a computer scientist or a quantum physicist. I'm never going to understand that at the depth of expertise that those people bring. But Mm. to create the spaces where you can communicate about shared issues across that deep expertise with the critical social science questions and try to do something together, that's a powerful combination. Mm. 
much more powerful. If social scientists try to do it on their own, there's no way we'll keep up because we yeah. don't have the training. We don't, you know, all we can do is desperately try and learn. And then we're still at the end of the first year of undergraduate computer science, you know. So we, we've got to, me anyway, speaking for myself, um, we've, we've got to have those kinds of um, collaborations and collaborations with partners who want to do things in a, a more critical way. And that sounds crazy at one level, but I do think we're at a moment, particularly with AI, actually exacerbated by COVID, where questions are being asked in government, in policy, in the mm. public debate about what are we doing with these technologies and what should we be doing with them and it's it's kind of the, the ethical the very broad not ethics in a bureaucratic way but the very broad moral moral and social questions about technology have been socialized you know they're all around us now and I think they've been particularly socialized by COVID because of the way in which that made transparent things like digital inequality children who simply couldn't do remote schooling because there was one mobile phone in a family of six children or they had no keyboard or, you know, some really fundamental basic things. And also the questions that were asked about the apps, you know, it was not a straightforward question where everybody just said, oh, yeah, great, take all our data and do what you want to track and trace us. And there was quite a high level kind of debate about, no, we, we're not sure that that's the right way to go. And we're worried about Apple giving, well, Apple wouldn't give the British government all their data. You know, that, that, would be, that was an interesting tussle between Apple and the Yeah, government. yeah. So I think the politics of data is being played out, for, as an example, is being played out in lots of different and quite surprising places at the moment. And that is a real opportunity to think about how things might be done differently. Not in, you know, this, we're not talking utopia. We're not talking an utterly radical transformation, but we are talking some 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 critical dynamics of how some reconfigurations could take place. Yeah, yeah. We have come towards almost the end of this talk. Um, I just have uh, two more questions and I want to bring you back into the space of the Anthropology and Technology Conference. And I'd love if you can share with with me, but also with the listeners, uh, one what what has motivated you to uh, to join the the conference, and to uh, what type of thoughts or what type of um, now what type of messaging do you want to send out to those that are considering to attend? Well, if anybody was to look at the website for the Anthropology and Technology Conference, they would see the answer to that straight away. You know, <laughs> from my motivation to join it, yeah. it's a collection of debates and contributions around exactly the issues that I've just been describing you know it, it feels mm -hmm. like home to look at their website I just think yep <laughs> the combination so it's the issues it's the orientation but it's also the collection of people that have been brought mm -hmm. together um, mm -hmm. by the organizers so it's a remarkable collection of people from academia from outside academia from very different worlds that are coming together and you don't see that actually that curated collection of people is it's really unusual compared with academic conferences, which are normally driven by individuals coming to present their research papers. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But this is a different space mm -hmm. that's being curated. So I would highly, highly recommend anyone who's interested in the future of socio-digital society, who's interested in how we create inclusive, sustainable societies, how we include different voices to think constructively about 
digital technologies and digital futures, why wouldn't you go? I mean, it, it, for all the for all the things we miss about meeting face to face, and I do miss an awful lot. Um, conferences online mean it's much easier to bring people together. And this, this is an opportunity of the digital age, right? Yeah, yeah. Somebody who actually might not be able to fly for whatever reasons halfway around the world to come and do a talk for 20 minutes will come to a conference like that online. So, you know, why not? What have you got to lose? I think it's a fantastic conference and I think everyone should should come. Ah, this is a very powerful ending. <laughs> so, um for those of our, uh, of our listeners that have not checked out the conference yet, we're going to put all the access details in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speakers' work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.